You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that Yahweh swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that Yahweh your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, Yahweh your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of Yahweh your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For Yahweh your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless Yahweh your God for the good land he has given you. Take care, lest you forget Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, And when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness, with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground, where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget Yahweh your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that Yahweh makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of Yahweh your God.
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 655 of this podcast. Today is Friday, July 7th, 2023, the year of our Lord. And that was Deuteronomy chapter 8. Not a long passage. And again, this is the interim. This is 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after 430 years of bondage in Egypt after God having affirmed a covenant and making a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here is Moses giving some parting words of wisdom and warning and also hope to Israel as they are just about to go in to take possession of the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for their descendants. The warning here at the last in verse 20 of Deuteronomy 8 is like the nations that Yahweh makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of Yahweh your God. And I want to draw on that as a principle regarding the character of God, a principle that I don't believe is a passing fancy. I don't think that is for then. And now today, God doesn't do that anymore because of the finished work of Christ. The work of Christ that is yet to come in the second coming, when he takes his inheritance of the nations, when the saints rule and reign forever with Messiah, that work is to come. And the work that has been finished is to atone for the sins of those who are in Christ. And that won't be everybody. Clearly, there will be many who say to him, Lord, Lord, on the last day, and he will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. As in, those who even thought they were Christians will be hearing in many cases, he says, Depart from me, I never knew you. And he'll call them workers of lawlessness. That's important. That's, I think, very relevant to verse 20 here. Like the nations that Yahweh makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey. And as a Protestant all my life, I know that Protestants generally, the Reformed in particular, many of my family is Reformed in their theology, by the way. But Reformed folks in particular, also Lutherans, have a tendency to an asthmatic reaction (laughs) to any talk of obedience, to any talk of doing what God says. There is a asthmatic response as though we need to take the opposite approach to what some do, where they say we're saved by our works. No, we're not saved by our works. But the opposite approach, insofar as somebody would say it doesn't matter what you do, that's not correct either. These are false choices, that you do one or you do the other. You either are saved by works or you don't do any works. There are no good works. In fact, if we take total depravity as one of the five pillars of Calvinist doctrine, if we take total depravity too far, 
you would say, it's not even possible. It's not even an option for the Christian to do good works. And of course, that can't be true. That would be, as some tell me, hyper-Calvinism. But I think even those who aren't hyper-Calvinists can embrace a mindset or an attitude or a way of talking, a way of prescribing, a way of discipling or preaching or teaching that says it's not even possible really for you to do good works. And so if it looks like you've done good works, well, we're going to keep digging until we find something that we can insinuate or we can question. We'll keep digging until we have robbed you of any joy whatsoever for doing a good work because we wouldn't want you to think that you're saved by works. I think that's actually not so good. I think that's not healthy. I think that that can be itself an expression of our depraved nature. And part of my reason for saying that is Old Testament and the New Testament were called on again and again and again to do good works. We're called on to obey. What are the good works? Whatever God has commanded us to do. But then for those who don't like to hear that, it could be not that they're trying to stand on sola fide. It's not necessarily always that they are defending the true gospel. It could be at times that there's a kind of lawlessness that we should watch out for. We should be very concerned about because yes, we are saved by grace through faith. But as James says, if you show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. And so it's not the works. It's God's grace through faith and that faith produces works. So we come to this passage, for instance, and it talks here, Moses speaks here about God causing nations, making nations to perish. As in, he raises them up, he gives them the material blessings, he gives them the social fabric or the potential to weave a social fabric. And at a certain point, if they are wicked and disobedient and rebellious, if they are evil, he makes them to perish, as in he brings them low, as in he collapses them, he destroys them, he causes them to be conquered or to have calamities. He gives people over to reprobate minds, which is to say he gives them over to unreasoning minds, minds that are incapable of reasoning, actually. And here we see Moses warning Israel, if you do not obey the voice of Yahweh, he will make you to perish also. You will perish if you do not obey the voice of Yahweh, your God. And we can quibble about timeline, and we can quibble about sequence of events, but here's the fact. If you have heard the voice of Yahweh and you do not obey, you don't want to obey, you don't even want to want to obey, then you are not God's. You are not God's person. You are not God's people. You cannot say, Lord, Lord, now, and expect a different response from those who are truly in Christ than what Christ himself is going to tell you on the last day. You don't get to demand that. You don't get to stubbornly insist on that. You don't get to say that that is true Christianity. It's not. But here we see also something significant that God doesn't just care about the individual. He doesn't just care about 
the person. He cares about the context of the person being a nation. We see here that God makes nations to perish. We see here a preview of what will happen in the final judgment. God will make nations to perish. He will break them. He will smash them. He will bring them, despite themselves, to obedience. Even if just briefly, they will have to bend the knee. They will have to confess that he is Lord. Now, will that save them when the time comes? No. But they won't be able to help admitting and acknowledging and recognizing that he is Lord. He is Lord, Lord. And yet, because they were disobedient, because they did what was evil, because they were faithless, they will be cast out eternally. And that, my friends, should inform a sense of urgency, a sense of gratitude if we're in Christ, but a sense of urgency to repent, to confess and to repent, to turn from our sins, to turn towards righteousness, Christ's righteousness, which also brings with it an imperative. There's a declarative aspect to sanctification, as in Christ's righteousness is given to us in Christ, but there's also an imperative. And if that imperative is not there, well then, maybe, just maybe, the declarative is also questionable. We're called to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and not to sin that grace might abound all the more. If we sin anyways, and if others call us to repentance of sin, and we say, oh, but I'm not under law, I'm under grace, we still have this problem of, is it genuine? Are we actually God's people? You can say that to me if I say, oh, you should really repent or you should really turn from this sin and this disobedience. You should turn from your neglect of what God has called you to. You should turn towards pursuing what God has called you to pursue, what he has given you the opportunity to pursue. You can maybe argue with me or stonewall me, or you can tell me, oh, no, no, no. I don't want to hear that. But it won't change the fact. You might get me to move along, but it won't change the fact. And God knows. So we should ask God for the grace that is sufficient for us to show his strength in our weakness, to help us with our unbelief. Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. If we are not being fruitful, is it possibly because we're not listening to God? We're not obeying the voice of Yahweh. We're not listening to it because we don't want to obey it. Is that a possibility that we neglect these things? Is it also possible that if we do obey, if we do hear the voice of Yahweh and obey it, is it possible that there are blessings in this life? That's one of the things I want to talk about in this podcast episode is Is it okay for us to expect that there will be blessings at times, there will be suffering, certainly, at other times, but there will be blessings at times that come with obedience here and now? Is that okay for us to say? Or the moment we say it, are we immediately thrown in with the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth theology folks? More on that to come. Also, in this episode, I want to talk about some suniform, cuneiform, you say potato, I say potato, but nobody says potato. One of those is correct. I think it's cuneiform. 
But we're going to talk about some 3,700-year-old cuneiform that has just made modern-day researchers aware that a long, long, long time ago, trigonometry was being studied and put into use a lot longer ago than what we believed until some tablets were deciphered. We're also going to talk about some baby boomer presidents and what kind of a legacy they've had as we're hopefully, I hope, on our last baby boomer president right now with Joe Biden. We'll talk about a ad that the DeSantis campaign for president 2024 just released regarding children. Also some pushback that Sarah Huckabee Sanders, governor of Arkansas, received for some chalk art that her children put up at the governor's mansion, and also Compassion versus Guilt by Thomas Sowell. Stay tuned for the very end of this podcast episode. We'll, we'll talk about Compassion versus Guilt, a collection of essays by the great and very wise Thomas Sowell. But for right now, while we're here, before we get too far from Deuteronomy chapter 8, Let's talk a little bit more about Moses before we get into the cuneiform and trigonometry story. If we go over to wikipedia.org and look at the entry for Moses, here's what we find. Right out the gate, Moses is considered the most important prophet in Judaism and one of the most important prophets in Christianity, Islam, the Druze faith, the Baha'i faith, and other Abrahamic religions. According to both the Bible and the Quran, Moses was the leader of the Israelites and lawgiver to whom the authorship or acquisition from heaven of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is attributed. According to the book of Exodus, Moses was born in a time when his people, the Israelites, an enslaved minority, were increasing in population and as a result, the Egyptian pharaoh worried that they might ally themselves with Egypt's enemies. Moses' Hebrew mother, Jochebed, secretly hid him when Pharaoh ordered all newborn Hebrew boys to be killed in order to reduce the population of the Israelites. Through Pharaoh's daughter, identified as Queen Bithia in the Midrash, the child was adopted as a foundling from the Nile and grew up with the Egyptian royal family. After killing an Egyptian slave master who was beating a Hebrew, Moses fled across the Red Sea to Midian, where he encountered the angel of the Lord speaking to him from within a burning bush on Mount Horeb, which he regarded as the mountain of God. Now, before we say any more, I'll point out again where the angel of the Lord is identified. It's very reasonable for a Christian to suppose all of those instances, especially when you look at what's actually being said, the kinds of claims and messages that are being said, it's very reasonable for the Christian to say, that's actually God the Son pre-incarnate in those cases. Like, for instance, in this case. So when you say, what would Jesus do? The answer might be, uh, appear in a burning bush to Moses and tell him, to go say to Pharaoh, let my people go. How's that for a paradigm shift? How's that for an eye-opener? Nevertheless, continuing on. God sent Moses back to Egypt to demand the release of the Israelites from slavery. Moses said that he could not speak eloquently, so God allowed Aaron, his elder brother, to become his spokesperson. After the ten plagues, Moses led the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, after which they based themselves 
at Mount Sinai, where Moses received the Ten Commandments. After 40 years of wandering in the desert, Moses died on Mount Nebo at the age of 120 within sight of the Promised Land. Generally, the majority of scholars see the biblical Moses as a legendary figure, shame on them, whilst retaining the possibility that Moses or a Moses-like figure existed in the 13th century BCE. Rabbinical Judaism calculated a lifespan of Moses corresponding to 1391 to 1271 BCE, actually BC. What is that event that happened that broke BCE and CE into two? It was Christ. You're not actually getting around anything to avoid Anno Domini. By the way, we all know what we're talking about here. (sighs) Jerome suggested 1592 BC. James Usher suggested 1571 BC as the birth year for Moses. Now, just for quick math, 1571 would be roughly 3,600 years ago. 3,600 years ago, thereabouts, right? Generally speaking, 3,600 years ago when Moses was born relative our day today. Now, why I take a moment to really draw your attention to that and talk about that is our next story is set in that same general time frame. Over at Upworthy, a article caught my attention published June 28th by the Upworthy staff titled 3,700-year-old Babylonian stone tablet gets translated, changes history, They were doing trigonometry 1,500 years before the Greeks. Dr. Daniel Mansfield and his team at the University of New South Wales in Australia have just made an incredible discovery while studying a 3,700-year-old tablet from the ancient civilization of Babylon. They found evidence that the Babylonians were doing something astounding, trigonometry. Most historians have credited the Greeks with creating the study of triangles, sides, and angles, but this tablet presents indisputable evidence that the Babylonians were using the technique 1,500 years before the Greeks ever were. Mansfield and his team are understandably incredibly proud. What they discovered is that the tablet is actually an ancient trigonometry table. To quote Mansfield, the huge mystery until now was its purpose, why the ancient scribes carried out the complex task of generating and sorting the numbers on the tablet. Our research reveals that Plimpton 322 describes the shapes of right angle triangles using a novel kind of trigonometry based on ratios, not angles and circles. It is a fascinating mathematical work that demonstrates undoubted genius, end quote. Okay, so why I bring this up is in part to answer the dismissal from many with regards to the Bible, with regards to the Pentateuch. For instance, for example, as I just read for you in the previous section from the article on Moses in Wikipedia, you have these scholars saying, oh, we don't even think Moses really existed. We don't think he was a real person who actually lived. Maybe, I mean, maybe there was somebody like Moses, but nah, you know, we think he is legendary and not real. And why Do they say something like that with such confidence in so many cases when they also can be off by 1,500 years with something like trigonometry? Now, 
don't get me wrong. If you don't have something like this tablet being translated and understood as indicating knowledge of trigonometry, being able to do trigonometric calculations in Babylonian times, 3,700 years ago, if you don't have something like this tablet, you might say, well, we have no reason to suppose. We have no evidence that they are doing trigonometry 3,700 years ago in Babylon. But when you do find a tablet like this, (laughs) what do you not say, right? What do these researchers not say? Well, we don't think that they actually were doing trigonometry. We think that the trigonometry was probably you know, written much later and then given the appearance of age so that our timelines still work and so that our presuppositions remain intact. No, 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 no. There's an assumption, an unfounded assumption of primitivity the farther back in history you go because a Darwinian view of our origins and of the cosmos is presupposed. It's very surprising to find 3,700 years ago, trigonometry, when we thought it was actually, uh, you know, only 2,200 years ago. It's very surprising because there's an assumption that the farther back in history you go, the more primitive people were. Let me ask this. If it turned out that 3,700 years ago, the Babylonians were doing trigonometry and also that 3,700 years ago, people were not quite so primitive as we suppose. If it turned out that actually the researchers were off by 1,500 years and they just assumed based on a lack of evidence that earlier people than the Greeks didn't know how to do this stuff, why would we, when we have the scriptures, when we have the Bible, why would we insist on believing that it's not true in what it's saying. Which is easier to believe? That Moses was a real person who actually lived and did the things recorded in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Which is easier to believe? That Moses actually wrote down these first five books or that the Babylonians about 100 years before people who really believe he existed, suppose he was born, that the Babylonians were doing trigonometry all that time ago, which is easier to believe that Moses was a real man who lived and wrote these things down or that the Babylonians were doing trigonometry. I think personally, it's more surprising that the Babylonians were doing trigonometry. And yet these scientists today more readily believe the more surprising thing, if it doesn't challenge their religious presuppositions, their moral presuppositions. What is the number one reason that most materialists, most positivists, most Darwinists try to explain away the existence of God or the authority of God? The number one reason is because their deeds are dark, because they're sinful and they don't want to stop being sinful. They don't want to repent. They don't want to turn away from their sins. They don't want to be accountable to God. That's the biggest reason I've come across again and again. They want to flip the script and sit in judgment over God, starting with whether he exists in the first place, but then if he exists, is he good? They very seamlessly, without even necessarily realizing it, I think, go from talking about whether he exists to whether he's good if he does exist. I think 
it all comes down to wanting to be lawless. Wanting to say this stuff didn't happen back then, these people didn't really exist or they didn't really do the things or see the things that we read about in the Pentateuch, I think is of a piece with what I said earlier about the last verse in Deuteronomy 8, which is to say, if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh, your God, he will cause your nation to perish. He will make your nation to perish just as he made the nations to perish that he is driving out in the Pentateuch, in the Old Testament. Just as he caused those nations to perish, he will also cause your nation to perish if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh. I think that's what it is. They understand that the God of the Bible is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so their fix to avoid submitting to calls to repentance, rebukes, being taught to obey, now their fix is to say nobody ever had to obey God because God either never existed or he wasn't so good. Or the Bible's not true and it's not a true accounting of what he has commanded and therefore that's our way of avoiding the problem of our disobedience, the problem of our sin. Personally, I'm not all that surprised if the Babylonians were doing trigonometry 3,700 years ago, just to be clear. I'm more surprised by that than I am the idea that Moses was born some 3,600 years ago. But I'm not surprised because I start with Genesis. I start with the genealogies of the first several generations of man after Adam, and I see that they lived for hundreds of years. They lived for centuries. I think they were doing things I think they knew things that would blow our minds today. I think part of the reason why we don't have a lot of evidence is because God sent a flood to destroy all life on earth. I think part of the reason we don't have evidence is in part, in part, because God didn't want their material effects to be handed down to us. I think just like God confused the languages at Babel so that people would spread out Instead of continuing on this vanity project of building a tower to heaven, as God says, if they do this thing, nothing will be impossible for them. I think it's a mercy to us that a lot of the evidence for how sophisticated, how intelligent, how advanced they were has been lost. I think it's a mercy to us lest we would follow after them in their hubris, in their arrogance, And yet, what are we doing today? And also, what are we expecting of the last days? As in the days of Noah, so shall the last days be. So if our technology starts to get to a certain point, our hubris correspondingly gets to a certain point, our lawlessness gets to a certain point, our playing God gets to a certain point, our capacity for doing violence to one another and to the creation that God has put us in to exercise dominion over it as image bearers, reflectors of his goodness and glory. If man's capacity and willingness to fill the earth with violence is as in the days of Noah, he won't send waters to destroy all life on earth again, but he will cause this heavens and earth to pass away and he will basically do a system restore on creation. That's what it's going to be. He'll keep those who are the saints. He will preserve us. 
and we will inhabit the new creation. We are a new creation, but also he will make the heavens and the earth as they were when he said that they were very good. When you believe, as I do, that that's actually the proper historical philosophy, when you believe, as I do, that that's the correct way to survey history and you should be expecting to find advances and you should be expecting to see a sine wave with civilizations and cultures rising and falling, rising and falling in proportion to virtue and goodness and obedience, conscious or unconscious, obedience to the purposes of God. When you approach history that way, when you approach science that way, when you survey current events that way, it affects a great deal of how you work, how you speak, how you think about yourself and your ancestors and future generations, if the world stands, provided the Lord has purposes for the world to stand another thousand years, it will. For our next topic, though, and just to show you a little bit of what I mean by this, an article caught my attention published six years ago or so by Michael Barone, Senior Fellow Emeritus with AEI, published in the Washington Examiner. The title of the article is Our Three Baby Boomer Presidents. The article begins as follows. This year, for the first time in our history, there are three American presidents who were born in the same year. We have had three pairs of presidents born in the same year, the very unlike John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson in 1767, Richard Nixon and his surprise successor, Gerald Ford, in 1913, Jimmy Carter and George H.W. Bush, 1924. Now we have three presidents who were born in the calendar year 1946, Bill Clinton in August, George W. Bush in July, and Donald Trump in June. Note that all three were born just a little more than nine months after VJ Day. For younger readers, that's the end of World War II. 1946 is generally taken as the first year of the baby boom, the remarkable and unpredicted sudden surge of births in the United States and numerous other countries. It continued by the usual reckoning until 1962 when births sharply plummeted, which means it includes at the tail end 1961, the year Barack Obama was born. The leading edge of the baby boom, the oldest members of an enormous age cohort, has made its mark on American life. Growing up in an era of post-war conformity, they insisted on doing their own thing. They listened to and played rock and roll, the first adolescent music genre. They participated in student riots. Their high school class of 1964 had the highest test scores in history. Compared to their parents, they attended college more and served in the military less. All seven presidents born between 1908 and 1924 were in some form in the World War II military. Two of the 1946 presidents never were in the military at all, and one served in the Texas Air National Guard. Two were the sons of men highly successful in quite different fields, one of a mysterious figure who died before he was born, but all three graduated from prestigious universities, Georgetown and Yale Law, Yale and Harvard Business, the Wharton School at Penn. Of course, each was different. Bill Clinton was a political prodigy with the capacity to understand public policy and its political implications seemingly off the top of his head. He started his political career 
early, running the 1972 McGovern campaign in Texas and almost upsetting a Republican congressman in 1974. In 1976, he was elected attorney general and in 1978 at 32 governor. He had luck and dazzling political skills to take advantage of it. When his career seemed to be winding down, he was renominated and reelected by lackluster margins in 1990. He took a chance on running for president against an incumbent who started the year with 91% approval that guaranteed weak Democratic competition and Ross Perot's surprise candidacy, which dislodged Bush and surprise and temporary withdrawal boosted Clinton. As President Clinton had his stumbles and unique disgrace, he was disorganized and undisciplined, but also constantly adapting and revising, rewriting State of the Unions on his ride to the Capitol. The public mostly approved George W. Bush was in some ways the opposite. After an unsuccessful House race in 1978, he mostly laid aside politics after his father lost to Clinton. He seems to have believed that God put it in his way to run for president and strove to tutor himself to do the best job possible. His strength was steadfastness. His weakness, as always, the same quality, stubbornness. He was agonizingly slow on mid-course correction, notably on Iraq but also on social security reform. Bush's political strategy designed to keep Texas from being the next California worked, but gave him only small electoral vote majorities. When his job approval dropped in 2006 to 2008, his party took its worst thumpings in the last 25 years. Donald Trump's strategy followed not Bush, but Ross Perot. He bet that his trademark stands on trade and immigration, different from every president since Eisenhower, though costing him votes, of college graduates in California, Arizona, Texas, and Georgia would gain him enough non-college votes to win. The bet paid off. Trump ran behind Bush in those states, but it cost him zero electoral votes, but swings by non-college whites in Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Maine gave him 100 electoral votes, twice won by Barack Obama. Was that shrewd insight or blind luck? Either way, it perhaps owed something to Ross Perot, born 1930 who helped make each of these boomers president. Now, let's just stop right here, right? Just think about this article, this assessment, this analysis with me for a moment. This is the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research. They're a nonprofit, nonpartisan, 501c3, according to the italicized writer at the bottom of this article. They're just looking at the situation and observing things. And that's what Michael Barone here, senior fellow emeritus, is doing. He's looking at the situation and he's reciting facts and observations. And what are we supposed to take away from an article like this? What insight is there? What wisdom are we supposed to gain? For starters, there's the passing reference to previous generations in contrast the most immediate generation to the baby boomers is contrasted. They served in the military and the baby boomers typically didn't serve in the military. They went off to college. The ones who rose to be the cream of the crop, so to speak, and become president, they typically didn't serve in the military. They typically were more adept, more sophisticated at just thinking on the fly, making it up as they went, being stubborn and not willing to course correct, going their own way right? Doing their own thing. They didn't want to be conformists like the expectation was through World War II. But then why was conformity the thing to react against in that time? Conformity was supposedly 
to win World War II. In order to mass produce people and weapons and ammunition and vehicles and other supplies, we have to have a general issue. We have to have factories. We have to have a cost-effective blueprint that we just repeat over and over and over again. And after World War II was won, rebuilding the economy in very many cases adopted the same approach. We're just going to mass produce the same house throughout this entire neighborhood. It's going to be the exact same floor plan, the exact same materials, the same dimensions, the same appearance on the outside. We're going to mass produce these cars. You're going to have some very limited options that look very similar to each other. We're just going to make a lot of them. Buildings downtown, clothes that men and women wear, the kinds of TV shows that you can watch, the kinds of radio programs you can listen to. It's going to be the same stuff over and over again because that's how we won World War II and that's how we're going to rebuild the world. Standardization, homogenization. And then the baby boomers end up being, in some sense, a mass-produced generation. we got to replace these people, right? We're going to rebuild the country and so we're going to have a lot of kids. We're going to have a bunch of kids And now there are all these baby boomers, but then the baby boomers react against the conformist tendencies of the previous generation. And they also, I think, react against the greatest generation being called the greatest generation. They don't like that. They don't want to conform to a objective standard of greatness. They want to break the mold. They want to be even greater, an even greater greatest generation. But what have they done by insisting on being nonconformists, insisting on sex, drugs, and rock and roll, abortion and birth control, both being legalized, no-fault divorce, broken homes, broken families, lots of kids growing up without fathers. And yet, there are two ways to read this business about the highest test scores in history. The high school class of 1964 had the highest test scores in history, Yeah. Why did those test scores start coming down and down and down and down? It's because excellence being objectively measured and standardization being seen as oppressive and repressive, stifling, those two combined with a certain rebelliousness and future generations weren't just aborted. If they were allowed to be born, they were raised in a way that the baby boomers basically wanted to communicate with as saying, we know better. We know better because we are better. And yet, test scores going down and not ever resuming the rise that they apparently climaxed at, peaked at in 1964, some 50 years ago, 60 years ago, actually, nearly enough, speaks to a certain negligence on the part of the baby boomer generation to give their children better than what they themselves grew up with. There's a certain selfishness to the baby boomers generation that plays itself out in not just abortion statistics, not just low numbers of children being born to the baby boomers, not just high divorce rates among the baby boomers, but also how children who made it through the gauntlet were taught, what they were taught and how they were taught and what kind of a country is being passed on to them any day now, hopefully. Even just Joe Biden still being a candidate in 2024 when he's not in the condition to do the job right now, 
is indicative of a certain selfishness, a stubbornness, a recklessness, a certain lawlessness among the baby boomer generation. Yes, there are exceptions. I don't mean to paint with such a broad brush that you couldn't say, hey, some baby boomers are great. Fine. But these are generalizations, just like a nation is a generalized group of people, a generation is a generalized group of people. And I actually am not so in favor of viewing Gen X. The baby boomers liked to look at Gen X as being a lost generation, a bad generation, just a bad crop of kids, the ones that didn't get aborted. I think it was the baby boomer generation that was the bad generation. I think that's why if Gen X was a bad generation, a bad crop of kids, I think that's why, one, we say that, and two, insofar as it was true, it was true because the baby boomers didn't raise their kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They didn't require excellence of their children. They didn't love and nurture and cultivate excellence in their kids. They didn't require obedience of their kids. It's not just that Dr. Spock, for instance, popularized this, don't spank your kids, don't tell them no, approach to parenting. It's that, similar to Charles Darwin, that book, that theory, that philosophy, that advice seized on a moment, a time and a place, and a culture and a generation that wanted to hear that. That's why it was popular as much as being a popular riser. It's a question of chickens and eggs here. But again, it's actually very similar to the larger theory of history, which says we're interested in the previous period that led into our period in history. And we think those guys were okay. We'll celebrate them, but we're actually so much better. The baby boomers have that mindset as a generation. It comes through in everything that they do, in the way that they talk, the way they carry themselves, the way that they approach problems. And so also, I think everything that came before, it's like, oh, it's just names and dates, right? It's names and dates and what? Irrelevant, because we're so much better. The farther back in history you go, the better we are than those people. And it's just not so. It's not so when the Babylonians were doing trigonometry 3,700 years ago, and we're just now figuring that out. It's not so when Moses was born some 3,600 years ago, and some of us still haven't figured that out. Next up, let's talk about children, and let's talk about a new generation insisting that we protect our children. I'm going to play for you a bit of audio from a new political ad coming out of the DeSantis campaign, Ron DeSantis, Florida governor running for president of the United States of America in 2024. Here it is. It's about two and a half minutes long. I'm going to play the full thing for you. You can check it out for yourself if you want to watch it. It's a great ad. It's a great message. Here it is. Without further ado, cut one. Take a listen. In America, we've witnessed a lot and put up with enough. You guys gotta go. Wait, let's go. He is arresting her for being on a public playground. Her kids are here. What are We've been forced into silence. <laughs> into compliance. 
told that we must trust the science. Indoor and outdoor venues should be closed. We've been told that we must deny truth, back down, and look the other way. Enough is enough. When you come after our kids, we fight back. Because there's nothing we won't do to protect our children. They're not yours. These are our kids. Our nation's children are all our children. We will not allow you to exploit their innocence to advance your agenda. We are no longer silent. We are united. And we have finally found our fighter. We're not going to let you impose an agenda on our kids. We're going to stand up for our kids. He'll do for America what he did for us in Florida. Schools open. Parents' rights defended. School choice universal. Critical race theory prohibited. DEI stopped. Child mutilation illegal. Girls' sports saved. Communities protected. Our economy growing. And freedom guaranteed. But winning the fight in Florida is just the beginning. We must protect parents' rights and the innocence of our children. We must restore sanity in our society. We need every mama and every grandmama in every corner of the country to stand up and fight back by electing Ron DeSantis President of the United States of America. Join us by texting MAMAS to 512345. Okay, uh, let me just start off by saying that was fantastic. It was great. A great advertisement. This really gets to the bottom line for my generation, the millennial generation. It is very concerning how our children were treated through the last three years. Very concerning how the left is increasingly openly talking about treating our children right now and in the future years. It's very concerning to me that the left has a radical communistic agenda and that they are trying to build the case philosophically and legally and socially for taking children away from parents if the parents are opposed to gender theory, if the parents are opposed to gender transitions being hoisted on their children or their children's friends. It is absolutely the thing worth fighting for if the left wants to take our kids or target our children, but then also too, if the left is hell-bent on destroying this country, destroying our economy, destroying opportunity for our children, and destroying opportunity for us in this generation, and if the baby boomers have let it happen, I say, we don't need Joe Biden for sure. He needs to be gone. He needs to be retired and actually investigated for high crimes and possibly even treason. But Donald Trump, I don't think he's the best option. I really don't. If he is the candidate, if he is the nominee for the Republican ticket, I will probably be voting for him. He is a much better candidate than anybody I see on the Democrat side, including RFK Jr. I think RFK Jr. would be far and away preferable to Joe Biden, but Donald Trump is still a better candidate than RFK Jr. But Ron DeSantis is the best option. It, it's not even close. He is more disciplined 
He is younger, and that is actually a positive. He's not a young man. He's a middle-aged man who has proven himself in the state of Florida through hard times. It's not just rhetoric. And he won a landslide victory in his re-election campaign in the state of Florida. He has done a very fine job. There are a lot of people voting with their feet. And there are a lot of people who would, if they could, if not for inflation, (laughs) destroying the value of our dollars and the property values in Florida going up and up because everybody wants to move there. So this right here, this is a winning message because it's true. This is the way to win because this is true. And it's good. If this is not good to fight for your children, to fight to protect your children, to fight to be able to provide for your children over and against predatory individuals who want to take food away from your household, who want to put food out of reach by making it so expensive, who want to take the lights being electrified affordably away from you, who want to take you being able to buy a vehicle to drive your family to church or to school or to sports events. When they want to take that away from young families and to make it cost prohibitive to have a family, and they want to take away the choice to even educate your child away from you as a parent or to speak into the environment where your child is receiving an education away from you as a parent, if they want to target parents and children as a way of getting political power, I say we have got to line up with a fighter who is able to fight and be disciplined and not some brawler, not some berserker who, yes, got some great things accomplished from 2016 to 2020, but also let a lot of bad things happen with the COVID lockdowns, with the election fraud. If you think that the election was stolen in 2020, that happened with Trump as president. If you're upset still about the mask mandates and the vaccine mandates and the social distancing and businesses being shuttered, small businesses being destroyed, jobs being destroyed, if you're upset still about those kinds of things, they happened at a national level and on an international level with Trump as president. Would they happen with Ron DeSantis as president? Look at what happened in Florida. Look at how he handled business in Florida. I think you have your answer there. But moving on, just briefly, I'll remind you of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Arkansas governor, another Republican who has refused here recently to remove her kids' cross-themed chalk drawing at the governor's mansion. There's a picture of it that was tweeted out by her where she's very proud of their work and she should be if they actually did this without help. It was just them working on it. It's fantastic. It looks amazing. And also at the same time, it drew the ire of this group called Americans United for Separation of Church and State because this is promotion of one religion over others. This is a religious display at an entrance to the mansion. And it, and I quote, sends an impermissible message that those who do not share the favored faith are unwelcome and will be treated differently. They demanded, this group demanded that Governor Sanders get this out of there. Don't do this. You can't do that. We're offended. And her response was, no, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. Historically, that is not in keeping with our nation's founding principles. 
there is religious language, Christian language, Christian prayer throughout our nation's founding documents, throughout the history of national addresses by government officials duly elected for all of American history up until the present. And this is going to stay. I'm not going to get rid of it. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to be apologetic. Good for her. Again, that's a winning message. Again, that is the choice. The choice is, on the one hand, between being a country that would be blessed, in which we are hearing and obeying the voice of Yahweh our God, we are honoring Christ as Lord and Savior, and blessed for it, and on the other hand, a very cold and satanic, hellish, communistic state where there is no God, and the only God is the state. The only God is the party. When you put those two options side by side, you need to know which one to choose and not get taken for a ride by the radical left. Enough is enough. While we're talking about enough being enough, though, I want to touch on a meme that was posted to Facebook by a cousin of mine, I'm not going to say which cousin of mine, but I will say the meme is supposedly originating from a certain Dustin Benji at worst.sinner on Instagram. And I'm not familiar with this guy. He might be really solid. He might be great, but I don't know him. And as such, I'm going to deal with the meme as it is. Maybe it just wasn't a great representation of his views more broadly, if it is, who oh buddy, uh, if it's not, uh, he's got some work to do, right? Work on your meme game, guy, with respect. The meme includes a picture of his face, Dustin Benji's face, with a quote of Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then what follows are two bullet points. The first This verse has nothing to do with sports, personal dreams, being a champion, overcoming obstacles, increased self-esteem. The second bullet point, this verse has to do with endurance in the midst of suffering. And I suppose this is supposed to be a mic drop moment, and there's an expectation from some that you applaud a meme like this. We need to push back on the people who are triumphalists, the Christus Victor folks. We need to push back on the health and wealth prosperity theology folks, and therefore you're supposed to give a pass to a meme like this because it's for a good cause, right? Some people think that if you're a Christian, then you get all these good things, but you don't actually have to, I don't know, obey Christ. You don't have to actually have good doctrine. You don't have to submit to the will of your Father in heaven at all. You don't have to believe rightly. You just name and claim. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's good theology that you say, because there's an error over here, we're going to do the opposite and that will be correct because the opposite of what I'm saying is an error. Therefore, what I'm saying is correct. No, that's all kinds of fallacious reasoning and it's not good theology. That's not a good way to go about doing your theology. Now, I've had a really extended, lengthy back and forth with another one of my cousins who is a pastor. He's bivocational. And I don't know him super well. He lives down south. I don't want to misrepresent what he has said. And he said quite a lot. And I said quite a lot in 
reply. And I think it's been cordial. Our back and forth has been cordial, which is great. I'm not going to get into our back and forth, but what I will do is I will share with you a C.S. Lewis quote here from Mere Christianity, which captures my sentiments exactly why I don't like this Dustin Benji meme. Quote, the devil always sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites, and he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking which is the worse. You see why, of course. He relies on your extra dislike of the one error to draw you gradually into the opposite one, end quote. So this quote in relation to the Dustin Benji meme will help you to understand and appreciate how I object to all things somehow being turned into not all things. It's literally in the passage. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things. That doesn't mean you will do all of the things that possibly can be done at the time of your choosing with the success that you thought you were going to have. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things. I can doesn't mean you will. When you pray, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done as Jesus prayed to the Father. You say, I will do what you want me to do, but I can do all things means all things. Whatever those things are that God has called you to do. And you know what God has called you to do because you get in the word and you read the word. You read the Bible. You study the Bible. You don't just read it and then make of it whatever you want to make of it. Read it, study it, study to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But all things means all things that God has called you to do. You can do all those things. Yes, you will have persecution in this life from those who hate Christ. They hate Christ, and so they're going to hate you as well if you're following Christ, if you're trying to imitate Christ, if you're trying to trust in Christ, if you're saying Christ is Lord. But it's not just that all things means endurance in the midst of suffering. What this is getting at is a can-do attitude. It literally is in the verse. I can do. It's a can-do attitude. I resent and I find obnoxious and annoying and possibly proof of the worst sinner being a sinner in this case. Somebody saying, it's only bad things. You can only do unpleasant things through him who strengthens you. You can only do painful things through him who strengthens you. You can only do sad things through him who strengthens you. No, 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 no. You can also do good things that are not controversial. You can do what God has called you to do, even if you're facing persecution. Absolutely. But the emphasis is these are the things you're supposed to be doing. The point is not to get persecuted, but to continue on and doing what you should do regardless of the persecution. I resent the insinuation that the emphasis is on the persecution. No, the emphasis is on faith working itself out in obedience to the good works that God has called us to do, who has prepared these good works for us from before the foundations of the earth. God, whose voice are we supposed to obey? Whose voice are we supposed to trust? God's. Again, I think this is the other side of the coin for a lot of the woke proselytes and a lot of the 
radical leftists and a lot of the communists, I think this is the other side of the coin for them, that when they work their theology into the church, this is how they do it. The point is not to elevate those who are suffering as though their suffering is always necessarily for righteousness' sake. If it is suffering for righteousness' sake, Jesus promises that there's a blessing in that. There's a, re- there's a reward that is great in heaven. That's not in question. That's not in doubt. But Paul writes to the Thessalonians about aspiring to live a quiet life, working with your hands, just as you were shown, just as you were taught. Work with your hands. Be independent walk properly before outsiders, do what is honorable in the sight of all. You can do that through him who strengthens you. And it can include sports. It can include personal dreams insofar as personal dreams may be connected to serving Christ, loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind as you're commanded, as is the greatest commandment that sums up all the law and the prophets, along with loving your neighbor as you love yourself. You can Be a champion. In fact, you're more than a conqueror in Christ, overcoming obstacles. Now, how is this for double-mindedness? This verse has nothing to do with overcoming obstacles, Dustin Benji says. Nothing to do with overcoming obstacles. It has to do with endurance in the midst of suffering. What if suffering is an obstacle? Have you thought about what it is that you're putting in the meme before you try and slap down the folks you think of as inferior theologically? ecclesiologically, philosophically, socially? I think not. I think not. Clearly not. Last but not least, though, before we run out of time in this episode, since I am endeavoring to be considerate and to have shorter episodes so that people like my wife and some of my friends who have let me know my episodes are a little on the long side for being able to get through, listen through in a normal day. Let's talk about Compassion versus Guilt and other essays by Thomas Sowell, a collection of essays going back into the 80s, wherein Thomas Sowell talks about a broad range of subjects. He gives lots of very insightful commentary on current events that were current events the decade I was born. And he shares some pretty fantastic observations and anecdotes throughout this collection of essays. For one thing, he talks at one point in one essay about unintended consequences and how very often some new social program, some new welfare scheme is proposed by the big government types, is proposed by the folks on the left, and how it depends on guilt. The push is for you to let them do what they want to do or to actively support them if that can be accomplished because you feel guilty otherwise. Thomas Sowell talks about unintended consequences for programs, not just in the U.S., but in other countries as well, around the world, unintended consequences to meddling in the economy and how you can destroy the incentive structure for doing well, for pursuing excellence. Pursuing excellence when it comes to your education or your profession or having and raising a family, having strong property values in your neighborhood, having strong communities. You can destroy the incentive structure when you give in to 
guilt trips by folks who claim to be solving problems. But in actual fact, they're causing still more problems and they're not actually even fixing the problems that they said that their programs and their initiatives would fix. And actually, I think this is very closely related to the meme that I take issue with from Dustin Benji. In claiming to be justified because a bogeyman in prosperity theology exists and needs to be responded to, what's missed is an equal or greater problem is created with hyperbolic dismissals, trying too hard to avoid one error while at the same time committing the equal and opposite error. And insofar as right now, there is a big push for abolishing private property, redistributing everything, merit, acclaim, authority, yes, wealth as well, but not just wealth. Insofar as there's a big push right now, I think we should do something of a post-mortem on the church's response to this point. How much of the church's response has really been a repudiation of a forgetfulness of the Lord loving a cheerful giver? How much of the church's response has been to guilt trip and to say that that is the essence of the Christian life? All the while, what is produced is despair and discouragement and not good works, not obedience. You know, this is a theme I have observed. I've noticed among some when they talk about the latest trendy Christian book that they read or the latest trendy Christian conference they attended, or the last sermon that they listened to, a very common and verbatim response when asked by, say, for instance, myself, what someone who is a Christian, a fellow brother or sister in the Lord, thought of that book or that conference or that sermon, what you hear is all too often, it was so good and super convicting. It was very convicting. And here's my question with regards to that. Is the big idea to be convicted of our sins or is the big idea to do what is right because we believe God? Is the big idea to be convicted or is it to at a certain point not be under conviction because you are cheerfully obeying? Shouldn't the big idea be to hear and obey the voice of Yahweh, our God, to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and isn't edifying the body, isn't building one another up towards love and good deeds, isn't that actually as much or more a factor of thinking on these things, whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is honorable, whatever is excellent, if there is anything, think on these things. Juxtaposed, by the way, in that passage from Paul, juxtaposed, just immediately adjacent to, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. What should you do instead of being anxious for anything? You should pray. Present your requests to God. And also think about things that are true and good and beautiful. Meditate on what is good and true and beautiful. Do what is good. Say what is true. Try and exemplify what is beautiful. Praise the examples around you of beauty. You know, I'll give you an example here, just briefly, right? When I see young men in our church 
holding a door open for somebody, I comment on it and I say, thank you, sir. If I see young men in our church helping to set up for an event or helping to clean up after an event, I say, thank you, guys. I really appreciate you chipping in and working together on this. Thank you very much. You guys did a good job. If there's a family at church who's moving, and this has happened several times in the past going on four years that we've been here at this church in Evans, Colorado, Greeley Evans, it gets fuzzy. It's hard to tell where one ends and the other begins. But when young men show up to help a family move, whether it's their family or it's not, I comment on their work ethic. When I see them having a good work ethic and really getting after it, rolling up their sleeves and really just getting this stuff moved and being careful and staying after it until the job is done, I comment on that. I say, that is excellent. Good job, guys. Well done. And you can see in real time, these young men just light up and they should, right? They should. And that's edifying. That's encouraging. That builds them up. What do they want to do more of? They want to do more of the thing that got them praised and thanked and recognized. If some over-spiritualist insists on us motivating by guilt, because that's what really is going to get to the true heart, the depraved heart of man, we're going to motivate by guilt. We're going to lecture those young men about how they shouldn't get too puffed up about how young and energetic they are. Not everybody's young and energetic. Someday you're going to be old and broken down and decrepit. What is that? I think that's abusive. I think that is malicious and ungodly, and that actually needs to be repented of. But when those young men light up because they're being recognized for, appreciated for, employing their strengths, and I'm telling them a true thing, that it's good that what they're doing is this today, that is appropriate. That is right. That's what Paul is getting at more broadly. And that is actually a long ways to dealing with depression and anxiety as well. Guilt trips and browbeating somebody because they're anxious or they're depressed while not recognizing any of the good that is happening around them or that they're participating in or that they're doing, not affirming them so that they don't grow weary in doing what is good, which by the way, requires that you recognize that they are doing some good. This is lost on far too many in the church today. And I think it's a large part of how the woke folk have made inroads in this country. And the church has to repent of it. We as Christians have to repent of that when we find it in ourselves. For another example, when I see young ladies at our church or at some event, and I see them doing something sweet and thoughtful, when I see them having baked something, for instance, and bringing it to some get-together, and they're offering it up cheerfully, right? They're a cheerful giver. They gave of their time and their attention and their efforts, and now they want to give you some of what they have baked, and they're doing so cheerfully, happily, and they want to see that you enjoyed it. I say, oh, thank you. That's so sweet. Wow, this is so good. This is delicious. Did you make this? Man. And again, as with the young men, you see their faces just light up, and they should. And what are they going to want to do more of? That thing that they were recognized for and they were affirmed in. You've now incentivized it. And that's why you encourage the saints, because you want to incentivize more of the good things, doing more of the good things. When I see a young lady who 
has come to church wearing a pretty dress. Maybe she sewed it with her mom. Maybe they bought it at a store. It doesn't really matter, but she looks lovely in it. What do I say? I say, oh, that's a nice dress. Yeah, that's a, that's a good color on you. I like that. Very cool. And what is typically the response? Thank you. And a smile because that's what they were going for, <laughs> right? They weren't trying to show up and look ugly. They want to look beautiful. If they're a young lady, they want to look beautiful. Same also with the young men. We have a father-daughter dance, daddy-daughter dance, I guess they call it, but I'm partial towards father-daughter myself, father-son, father-daughter, not daddy-daughter any more than I would say daddy-son. Anyway, young men in our church, just like they show up to help move families on a routine basis, will also volunteer to help with the daddy-daughter dance. And it probably doesn't hurt that there will be beautiful young ladies about their age dancing and eating and having a good time. That probably doesn't hurt the interest in helping out, volunteering. But nevertheless, these young men, they'll show up dressed very nicely, dressed very smartly, very very sharp. They look like gentlemen. They look like young men. They are young men. And they need to be affirmed in that. They need to be complimented when they show up wearing a nice suit or dress pants and vests with dress shoes, and they look good. And when you compliment them, what will they say? Ah, thanks. Right? They smile, right? They don't get depressed. They don't all of a sudden get anxious. They smile. They beam. Shoulders back, chest out, standing just a little straighter, because that's how it should be. Now, what do we do? Going back to Thomas Sowell, what do we do when somebody is in a bad way? Let's suppose rather than being beautiful, they're ugly. Rather than being strong, they're weak. Rather than being jubilant, moving into their new house, they're homeless. Rather than having just prepared a delicious meal that they made themselves full of very fine ingredients that they painstakingly combined and cooked and prepared, and now they're presenting, they're hungry. They're not getting three square meals a day, and you can tell. But what do you do with those folks? Why this collection of essays is so important by Thomas Sowell, even just in the title, is if what you do for those people is you motivate, you motivate them by guilt-tripping other people who are doing better, who have food, who have a home, who have a job, who have beauty, if you motivate those other people who have something that the have-nots don't have by guilt, what you will have done is for those who are in dire straits because they made bad choices, because they sinned or they were foolish, you will have absolved them of any responsibility, but also any opportunity to do better and have better results. So also for those who have, you will actually take away their joy if they were going to share what they have, if they were going to come alongside those who are suffering, you'll rob them of the joy of it if they listen to you. And if they have sense, they won't listen to you insofar as they were doing what is good because they love God and they love their neighbor as themselves. And they were a cheerful giver. If they have sense, they won't substitute that motivation of love 
with you trying to guilt trip instead. But so also, let me just point out the compassion piece here. How compassionate is it if the city of Moscow, as Thomas Sowell writes, or the city of Leningrad, as he writes, came up with a plan to put women who were pregnant higher up on the list of applications for an apartment only to have young women getting pregnant on purpose just so they could get an apartment and then giving the child up for adoption so that they could get married. They were more likely to be able to get married in Moscow and Leningrad if they had an apartment, if they were a young woman in the city with an apartment. What are you doing then? If you're motivating by guilt versus compassion, what you do is you create additional problems that didn't exist before and you reward bad behavior. You reward foolishness, which in turn creates additional problems. And is that really so compassionate? Is that compassionate towards all these young children who in the eighties were being given up for adoption by their mothers because their mother got the apartment she was looking for? Is that compassion towards those young women who not getting married because they didn't have an apartment, fooled around, and then got married to somebody else. Was that compassion? Really, truly? You know, it's that kind of a problem we find ourselves saddled with in too many cases in America as well, in the church as well. We say our goal is good theology, but it's always defined by what it isn't. It's always defined by what we are opposed to in the here and now. And it's usually myopic and it's usually tunnel vision on this person who is saying something that's false. If the goal is not good theology first, if the goal is not love for God, love for our neighbor as ourself first, it's too easy to actually just multiply the errors. It's too easy to miss out on the Lord loving a cheerful giver. It's too easy to pay lip service to being so convicted and then to not move on to the joy of our salvation. It's too easy and it's wrong. The publisher's summary here is worth noting at audible.com. And I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can go and check out this book. It's not long. It's six hours, 24 minutes. If you listen on one time speed, I listened on double speed. And I had to rewind a couple of times just to make sure I picked up on what he was saying. The publisher's summary reads as follows. Sociologist, economist, soul, a noted conservative, draws this collection of essays from his Scripps Howard syndicated column and his contributions to the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Washington Post. Soul offers opinions on social and foreign policy, law, education, race, criticizing the trend of American politics since Reagan and reserving his sharpest criticism for special interest groups such as homosexual lobbies, welfare and pay equity beneficiaries, and political victims of all kinds. His essays are tied together by an analysis of the costs and benefits of various concepts, proposals, and actions, and an emphasis on common sense. I think this is part of how you begin to correct what has gone astray in the U.S., in the church, first of all. 
instead of latching on to this or that celebrity, even a local celebrity, even myself for that matter, and saying, ah, this person is being listened to and read widely. This person is being held up as popular and authoritative and respected. And so I'm going to listen to them and they're going to tell me what I need to know. They're going to tell me what I should be thinking about. What we should probably be cultivating is a short list of folks who are encouraging us, building us up to think rightly and use common sense ourselves and do good works ourselves. I think too often when we latch on to somebody else who's telling the truth or doing what's good, there's a kind of vicarious virtue that we think is attributed to us by hearing them tell true things, by seeing them do good things. And predatory folk will exploit that. And they'll say, send me money, vote for me, give me what I want so that I can go and do this good thing. I can go and say the true thing on your behalf. By extension, by proxy, you also will have done the good thing. And insofar as we have become dependent, we've made ourselves dependent, I think we've abandoned in all too many cases what Paul was getting at in his letter to the Thessalonians. Aspire to live a quiet life. Great. Doesn't that sound great? That sounds great. Working with your hands. Ooh, okay, so there's a dignity. There's a goodness, an inherent goodness to working with your hands. All right, okay. Might have to think about that in this day and age where more and more is expected to be automated and on the heels of a generation that increasingly eschewed manual labor, physical work, imported people from other countries to do the manual labor jobs, encouraged our kids to go off to college, demanded, in fact, in many cases, you have to go off to college or you're never going to amount to anything. You'll never amount to anything if you're doing manual labor. Ooh, oofta. You know, maybe we say, We're going to encourage more of our kids to go into the trades, actually, if we want to really obey that Thessalonians business. Paul was a tent maker, by the way, to support himself at various times. Not that it's wrong to receive gifts from the church to support the work of the ministry. I'm not saying that at all. But Paul was a tent maker at various times so that nobody could say he was exploiting the church, as a way of distinguishing himself from those who were exploiting sincere believers, sincere faith. Minding your own affairs. How about that one, right? Minding your own affairs. When Paul says, mind your own affairs, again, predatory people might use that as a way of trying to deflect you when you're like, hey, what are you doing over here? Hey, what's what's going on? Why is this door shut? <laughs> hey, what's this item here? What's this expense here? Hey, uh, what did what did you just say to him? What did you just do to her? Yeah, predatory people might take what Paul says about minding your own affairs and twist it and say it means don't look into the implications. Don't look into the side effects. Don't look into the unintended consequences of supposedly well-intentioned initiatives and projects and organizations and groups and programs. Mind your own affairs, we need to really meditate on what that means in light of the whole counsel of God and how that as as a umbrella category, your own affairs, must mean that some things are your affairs, your business, working with your hands. For instance, 
requires that there's material for you to be working with, and it restores an appropriate theology of work if we would forget it, if we would say, oh, no, 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 no. What's immaterial is good. What's spiritual is good. The material world, it's all going to burn anyways, and so I don't need to work with my hands. No, 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 no. No. Mind your own affairs includes, but is not limited to, the possessions the Lord has blessed you to have, the fruits of your labors, your home, your garden, your livestock, if you have livestock, your vehicle, your furniture, your ability to be hospitable to others, your ability to clothe the members of your own household especially, but also your extended family if they are dressed shabbily. Your own affairs includes helping a family move, for instance. That becomes your business. If they're part of your church and you have the ability, you have the opportunity, start with your own immediate family, yes. Start with your extended family in some cases, sure. Paul says, the man who does not provide for the needs of his family, especially members of his own household, is worse than an unbeliever. Ooh, ooh, that's part of what it means to mind your own affairs, to look after the particulars that make it possible to provide for the needs of your family, your household. But then he says being dependent on no one. And that bit, right, that bit is where Thomas Sowell-type material, if more of us would read Thomas Sowell-type material and understand how out of fashion common sense has become, I think more of us would fall back in love with an appropriate, godly, God-honoring, fruitful, joyful self-sufficiency and independence. And insofar as I hear sometimes the arguments made for why we should help other people being guilt-driven instead of coming from a place of abundance because we have minded our own affairs, we have worked with our hands, we have aspired to live a quiet life. There's a lot of correction that needs to happen in the American church. And that conviction should not be all there is to our response. We're convicted. Okay, now how about you be obedient. (laughs) How about you move on from conviction to obedience so that your joy may be complete? Walking properly before outsiders. Well, what are the outsiders paying attention to? What are they noticing? What are they picking up on? Again, this has to do with the material effects of God's provision, but also the material effects of our having worked with our hands. Which is to say, it is the business of Christians to study economics and to think rightly about how who they're voting for, who they're sending money to, who they're supporting, who they're coming alongside, who they're partnering with should actually be empowered and enriched and given a mandate. Now, going back to the DeSantis ad, just briefly, and then we've got to wrap up and I got to run. Your children are your business. How your children are educated, that is your affair. How your children are clothed and fed and housed, not just today, but in the decades to come, that is your affair. Men, in particular, husbands, fathers, it is your business. How somebody else wants to take opportunity, take wealth, 
from you, take the fruits of your labors away from you, if such would prevent you from being able to provide for and protect your family, your household. That is your business. And you should have compassion on the people who don't have what you have, by all means. And when you have the opportunity, if the Lord loves a cheerful giver and you have the capacity to give and you've attended to your own affairs already, by all means, be generous. But if somebody's trying to guilt you into it, correct them. At least don't reward them, but correct them with what Paul said about the Lord loving a cheerful giver. And in that way, you will actually be demonstrating even more compassion for the have-nots. But as I said, that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.